Hey, everybody, and welcome back to From Paper to People. And we're here with another episode of the Family Cookbook. And I have with us for a second time our food reporter, Rick Leonard. He's here from An American Genealogy. Did you go? Did you go look at his blog? Did you? Do I have to come through the mic and get you? Or did you go and look at his blog? All right. Okay. Write it down. I'll wait. An American Genealogy. I'm waiting. Okay, good. All right. He's also got a Twitter account. Same deal in American Genealogy. Have you looked at his Twitter account? Do I have to come to your house? Okay. All right, good. So Rick's here, and he's here with a piece of history that I absolutely adore. This is a recipe, the kind of recipe specifically, that I would kill for. And frankly, I might have something like this in one of the cookbooks in my garage, but I'm not sure, so I have to look. This is a real hand-me-down, folks, and it's a gem. So welcome back to the show, Rick. Thank you so much for having me. It was so fun the first time. I'm so excited to be back again. Yay! Okay, so tell me about the person that this recipe comes from. Sure, and it, it kind of dovetails in with our first episode a little bit. We, we talked about my, the congressman and his wife, my great-grandparents, um, E.A. and Myra Morse. And um, I, I think I'd mentioned that there were a lot of documents that came my way, a lot of her papers, a lot of his papers, and a lot of speeches. They were both very heavily involved in the community um, well after his service in, in, in the Congress. She was especially involved in women's clubs and organizations, you know, in Andigo. She ended up being a DAR as well and involved heavily at the state level. But there's an interesting thing. I, you know, I ended up with boxes and boxes of the stuff that uh, had been, you know, maintained since the early 1900s. And one of the first pieces of paper I pulled out was a set of recipes, a set of, I don't know, 12 recipes. And as I dug through more and I, I, I did a quick index of everything that I had uh, and read a bunch of the speeches, one of the things that became apparent was that she was speaking to women's groups. And I think that this comes as a part of that. Those 12 recipes um, were a part of that. I did find out they were big typers. They typed everything. All their personal correspondence was typed. Uh, so when I first found the typewritten recipes, I was worried that it was just cribbed, you know. Um, but then when I'm, you know, like every letter is typewritten, I, I'm pretty confident that these were a part of the household. Um, I definitely know that Myra cooked. Uh, Myra was was definitely, um, despite her station, was very domestic and very you know well versed in that. And so the you know the other things I found is that they were uh, really involved early in the progressive movement, which plays a role you know as the years go on, um, and especially as it goes from Bob LaFollette's Republican progressive movement to the democratic progressive movement but there was a real focus on food for that uh, some of the first food purity laws and the federal regulation of food um, all came about during his tenure in congress it was a real progressive tenant and eleanor roosevelt really did a lot of work on food during the depression that seems like a real natural progression where she published cookbooks of very 
hearty and nutritious food for the day, but made with ingredients that people could either get from food banks or, uh, you know, it, it was not complicated, but and some of it was not exactly the most uh, appetizing either. But there really was sort of this thread, this focus on food and quality food and sort of as they're going through this urbanization, industrialization, citification, you're taking people who are used to creating food in their kitchen from the farm or from local farmers and now not, you know. And so I, I really, I, I found various letters from her over the years that were um, talking about food and, and you know, what it, the role it played in especially women's culture as she would have seen it in Anigo at the time. And so when I found the recipes, I, it was just awesome. And, and first of all, they're, they're mostly waffles, which I think is great. Um, and, you know, her daughter, my grandmother, again, I, I can think of two things she cooked, and one of them was buckwheat pancakes. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me if she got that yum. from her mother. Oh, yum. Uh, yeah, right. I, uh, one of my first uh, memories of the buckwheat pancake was, she was at our home in Green Bay and uh, was cooking. And I'll be honest, other than roast goose, I, I've never seen her cook anything else. And I remember eating 18 buckwheat pancakes. I, I must have been seven, you know, and just could not get enough of them. Um, They're fantastic. And I've, I've got the recipe. But um, what I found when I went through Myra's papers uh, were a series of these recipes. And the one that jumped out at me first was gingerbread waffles. And I just thought, what a fantastic idea. <laughs> I'd never heard of such a thing. And so that's the one that popped out at me first. And that's, to me, that could just be a way of life. Because let, let's just think about this for a second. If you have a gingerbread waffle and you want to have a proteinaceous breakfast, just put peanut butter on it. Mm. But then if you have a gingerbread waffle and you want to have a sweet treat, go for some maple syrup or maybe some honey. I mean, you have options for dessert, a little ice cream. That's all you need to do. I mean, I wouldn't even be shy about putting some chocolate syrup on there. So I think that this right here, this just may be the answer to some dreams out there. It is fantastic. It really is. And it's, yeah, I mean, it, uh, it's really the best of all worlds. Like you said, incredibly versatile, it, sweet but nutritious and I'm, I'm a huge sucker for gingerbread so you, you put it all together um it's wonderful it is uh i have a six-year-old and it is his favorite uh as well and so um we have some ingredients and some techniques that we only use for this recipe that are only here for this recipe so uh um because Fantastic. he definitely wake up and say you know can we have waffles you know, on Saturday, right? <laughs> so hit us with this wonderful recipe. Sounds great. I'll walk you through it. Three eggs, one quarter cup of sugar, one half cup of molasses, one cup sour milk, one and one half cups of flour, one teaspoon of ginger, half a teaspoon of salt, one teaspoon soda, one teaspoon baking powder, one and a third cup melted shortening. And the instructions are beat eggs until light, add sugar, molasses, sour milk, and remaining dry ingredients sifted together. Beat until smooth and add shortening. Cinnamon and clove may be added if a spicier waffle is liked. Serve with butter and powdered sugar. Make six waffles. 
Oh, that sounds good. Now, I guess sour milk, you can make sour milk with a little bit of vinegar in your milk. Have you had to go into that particular adventure? Yes. And so thank goodness for Google. Um, <laughs> I, uh, the only thing I can think of sour milk is not going into anything I'm making for breakfast. Um, but I did <laughs> search and um, yeah, the two things I saw were lemon juice and uh, vinegar. Okay. Um, and that was one you couldn't get. I'm also, I did do some research because I was a little worried about putting baking soda and baking powder together, but I am using, uh, when it, it calls for one teaspoon of soda, I'm actually using baking soda for that. And what was interesting was I, uh, I have never bought shortening, not part of the, the kitchen kit, you know, and so had to go out and uh, buy vegetable shortening and, um, and melt it, which was interesting. But I'll tell you, it makes a, a waffle that is very much like a true Belgian waffle. If you've, I've eaten them in Europe, and they're a little more doughy, a little thicker. Kind of going back to your ice cream, you know, it's it's more, it, it's almost a dessert consistency. It's not the fluffy, light um, kind of premix that we get. Um, and I've always used just all-purpose flour. Um, I have no idea what the various options were back then, but I figured that'll that'll be as close as I'm going to get. That sounds absolutely fantastic. And I love the idea of making things exactly the way that they were made before, as opposed to putting in a bunch of substitutions and trying to update the recipe. Now, this is completely counter to what I normally do, because what I normally do is I take a recipe and I say, meh, I don't know, I think I'm going to tweak that. So I'm totally, totally contradicting myself here, as opposed to what I do in regular life. I love the idea of completely doing exactly what the author did a hundred years ago or whenever it was, because that really is stepping back in time and really respecting and honoring the ancestors who created and enjoyed the recipe. Totally. And, and I think that, um, first of all, I'm a huge fan of, you know, especially a new recipe, do it right the first time, exactly the way it calls, and then immediately start embellishing, enhancing. <laughs> and, you know, I find myself when I make this um, or, or any of these sort of found recipes is that I, I can think of my grandmother having this at her breakfast table in 1919 in Anago, Wisconsin. And now I'm at that moment too. And it both flavors were on each of our palates identically. And it seems to create a connection, you know, and this, I, I can't say that I grew up eating this. Um, it's most certainly a comfort food, though, I'll tell you that. It is fantastic. Um, but it is one of those things that it, it, it seems like a very tangible link to the past of I'm eating something that I know Myra ate and I know that my grandmother Catherine ate. And it's now a part of my life and now it's part of my children's life. And so, you know, for that moment, it's easy to sort of be back at that dinner table, which, again, if I could have an hour to talk to mm -hmm. a relative. How nice would it be to enjoy this this waffle and to sit around the kitchen table and ask that hours worth of questions, you know? So um, there, there's definitely a tangible link there and I'm not going to mess with it. I have not decided for a spicier waffle yet, so I've not put in either <laughs> or clove, but um, I'm sure they're both wonderful. But knowing her other recipes and uh, food tastes that I've gotten from various letters, she was not interested in a spicier waffle. Um, oh. So I, I'm eating it just the way she would. That's so wonderful. I absolutely love that. And I love the idea of keeping that bridge to the past. That's, that's the whole point of this. Bourdain was an inspiration. 
because he was about honoring food and the simplicity of food and ties to the past. And I've always thought that that was really cool. And Michael Twitty is an incredible inspiration because his work, um, he's a kosher soul on Twitter, if you guys don't know him. And he's the author of an incredible book that is about food and African-Americans and what people ate during enslavement and how soul food carries forward and the purposes of food and its place in the community. It's about a lot of things. <laughs> it's kind of been a, a difficult book to explain in a way. It's just easier to kind of read it, uh, which I definitely recommend. But these kinds of influences, what people are understanding now about the place of food and the possibility of sitting down with food and having a conversation with somebody that because of that food, you might not be able to have otherwise a cool conversation, a chilled out conversation. I love yeah, that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I will tell you it, 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 um, I was listening to the Johnny Mazzetti episode driving through Northern Wisconsin, uh, with nothing but hours of road in front of me. And <laughs> so your, your mind tends to wander. And one of the things like everything that, you know, that you've just said, but if you've ever had that moment where a smell, you know, reminds you of that spring day or, you know, walking into grandma's house. And I, I still remember what my grandmother's house smelled like. Um, and if you tie it back to our work as family historians and as genealogists of, you know, it's fine. I, I'm interested in the birth dates, but what I'm really interested in is the stories, the connections, the objects, the you know, I, I've got EA's pocket watch, and it means the world to me that it's worn. His hands wore that watch for 40, 50 years, and he probably got it from his father, it looks like. And, you know, and it may come to him worn. And there's something about the stories that we quest to find tied into that, you know, that, that smell that triggers the memory that, and that direct connection that I know my grandmother ate this and now I'm eating it and we have the same flavor. There's something really profound about food in genealogy that I'd really never considered before until, you know, luckily you brought it uh, to my, to my forefront. That's, that's great. So Rick, you're, you're officially a correspondent now and <laughs> there are 12 recipes in that grouping, will you come back to us with more? Absolutely, I um, I, I will. Uh, I'll be your official uh, Midwestern food correspondent as long as you'll have me. <laughs> That's fabulous! Thank you so much. I'm so glad that you came back to us again, and I'm looking forward to the next time that you do. Again, everybody, it's Rick Leonard and American Genealogy. I will come through the microphone if you don't check out his blog. Check him out on Twitter as well. And we will be doing some talking about some of his projects in a future podcast. But in the meantime, enjoy some waffles on Rick and his ancestors, okay? Thanks a lot. And thanks again for coming, Rick. Thank you so much for having me. Mm -hmm.